Hello, welcome to this episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. This is the podcast that generally focuses on films of the new Hollywood era of the 70s and foundational TV series that you might have grown up with in the 70s and the 80s. But occasionally, we do veer off into more recent phenomena. I'm going to just record a quick episode solo because last night I was lucky enough to be able to catch a pre-release screening of Top Gun Maverick, the new Tom Cruise Top Gun film, which opens on May 27th, I believe, which is two days from today. So on Thursday, Friday this week, it will have opened. Uh, I'm going to hold this episode until enough of you have probably seen the film for some of the content to be familiar with you. I'm not going to release this early uh, before you have a chance to go check out the film because I think based on the reaction that I saw last night in the movie theater, this is going to be a phenomena. This is going to be a global phenomenon probably. Uh, this to me feels like a film that's gonna gross a billion dollars when all is said and done. I think it's very much a film that we need at this moment in time and I wanna get into some of the details of the experience of going and seeing the movie. Now, I've been posting on social media a bit things such as Tom Cruise has saved going to the movies. And I really do feel that knowing what we know about Tom Cruise, you know, he's a big advocate of the theatrical experience. In the pandemic, we also had that moment where the audio recorded from the set of one of the forthcoming Mission Impossible films was leaked Early on in the pandemic, this is when they were one of the first big, big productions to go back to work. And the protocols were so strict. And apparently Tom noticed two people who were supposed to be wearing masks, not wearing masks, having a conversation in violation of the protocol. And he blew his top because more than just the star of these films, Tom Cruise is frequently uh, the producer. And not just in name only, I think that the business of making these films and putting them together is something he is intimately involved with and takes very, very seriously. And he understands that for that point in time, the industry is probably looking at uh, the Mission Impossible set in terms of what is possible. Is Was shooting during COVID a Mission Impossible or not? And so interestingly, unlike many other leaked bits of set audio, Christian Bale, for example, maybe the famous uh, Lily Tomlin and uh, David O. Russell audio, or Dustin Hoffman, Lily Tomlin, David O. Russell audio. Uh, sympathy was pretty much on Tom's side, even though he's clearly lost his temper and he is absolutely screaming and using profanity. And I think people felt that they understood why that was because um, he was taking something extremely seriously, which had to be taken extremely seriously. So anyway, I think that this movie coming out now um, is very much about getting people to go to the movies. And the ways in which they've done that and designed this experience, I think are myriad. I saw the film in something called a Regal RPX, which stands for Regal Premium Experience Theater. This is a theater that has the sort of lounging, reclining seats that you're used to, but I believe the seats also had speakers contained within them or bass woofer speakers particularly because it was a full body experience when the jets were flying or firing up. And you were also looking at a slightly curved, kind of baby IMAX is what I would uh, characterize the screen as. So it's a much bigger image 
a much crisper, clearer image than you're used to seeing in a regular, even digital cinema. And the experience of going in is, in the words of Regal, supposedly premium. And it definitely was enough. I mean, there are certain films I would absolutely see in this RPX format, such as it is. There's another format someone told me about uh, on Instagram, which I'm just going to go to, which I hadn't heard of before. And then I looked it up. Uh, and this this film is also being released in this this with some additional foot foot um, footage shot for this format. Let me just find out what it is. Okay, so it's something called Screen X, and I hadn't seen Screen X. I've never seen a film in Screen X. It's another Regal product. It's basically a, I'll just read you what it is, according to Regal. Regal is changing the entertainment landscape with Screen X, a revolutionary multi-projection theater experience that extends the screen to the auditorium walls. This immersive format takes traditional movie going a step further by surrounding the audience with a 270 degree panoramic visual and putting them in the center of the action. Fly to the farthest reaches of space or explore the depths of the ocean with this incredible technology and experience the thrill of the movies like never before. So when you look at a photo or photographs of what this looks like in real life, they of course are using things like incredible uh, oceanographic images so that you sort of feel like you're immersed in what really is three three movie screens, one directly in front of you, and then two screens extending up along the sides of the movie theater. And apparently, depending on the film that you're going to see, you could have a film that is designed to be viewed this way so that there is apparently one seamless continual image that that goes across all three screens. But more common, and what I've seen referenced about Top Gun in this format, is that apparently the filmmakers shoot additional footage that's meant to go on those side screens, even as you're visually supposed to key in on the main screen, which is where the main part of the film is playing out. So I'm not sure if that really does contribute to a different experience, but I think all of these things are about something important for all of us fans of movie going, which is that the theater chains are having to reimagine the experience of going to the movies. If you go to a regular movie theater these days and you're seeing certain types of movies, the experience is interchangeable with what you might have at home. As television prices drop, the ability to have a 75 or 100 inch uh, LCD television of a very high quality image and an audio package that can cost just several hundreds of dollars to have an improved audio experience is not beyond the reach of most average consumers and people who take watching movies seriously. So there has to be a reason to go to the cinema now for movies. Films have to have that epic size and scope and sonic design. And on the artistic end of filmmaking, you have things like Blade Runner 2049 or Dune or Top Gun Maverick or the Mission Impossible films or the James Bond films, all of which use this medium to its fullest capacities and are pushing the envelope in design and in structure and all of these things, and also causing cinemas to basically change the way they present the product to the people. So whether it's ScreenX, RPX, IMAX, whatever you have, whatever you're interested in, uh, it's 
it's available and it's and it's starting to be more common. And I think that a lot of uh, people are putting pressure on the cinema chains to increase the impact of the audience experience because uh, they've got to get butts in the seats. They want to get people to go see movies. I personally think Top Gun Maverick is going to do the largest heavy lifting of returning people to movie theaters uh, that we've seen. You know, it's committed to theatrical release. Tom Cruise is traveling the world, promoting it, doing the work. And the experience of seeing the film is a fully engaged sensory experience, even as the point of the film is still a movie. It's still your emotional connection to the characters on screen. It's your connection to the original film and seeing some of these characters 30 years later. It's your familiarity with iconic things like buzzing the tower, shirtless sports scenes on beaches, motorcycle racing, jets, uh, all this kind of stuff. Incredible aerial acrobatic photography. It's this interesting amalgam of nostalgia, and contemporary filmmaking at the highest level of technical mastery with an audio design and a sonic presentation that is just gonna blow your socks off. I mean, <laughs> it's almost like working out watching this film. I think that your heart rate probably goes between zone two, three, four, and maybe five during some of these flight sequences if you're in a film like an RPX because your seat is vibrating and the audio is so deafeningly loud that you feel like you are in the presence of an F-18 or an F-14 Tomcat or whatever the jets are that are being flown on screen. I think it's interesting because it's a, it's a film geared to get you to go to the movie theater. And I think that's very necessary. I'm supportive of that. I think more films like this, more quality films. I'm slighting the Marvel movies, I know, but that's because I'm slighting the Marvel movies. Those are not quality films to me. I get that a lot of you probably enjoy them and want to go see them. I don't, and I don't. So for me, that's not going to get me to go to the movie theater. This type of film is going to get me to go to the movie theater, and it did. And I'm so glad that I did, because what a movie. So, I mean, the experience of seeing it in a movie theater, I'm sure many of you have had. When you hear those first Harold Faltermeyer synth keyboard notes, those, that kind of synth bell that announces that we're in Top Gun territory. Uh, the audience erupted in cheers at the screening we were at. When the words Val Kilmer or Tom Cruise came on screen, the audience erupted in cheers. Whenever there was a moment which called back to the original film, the audience erupted in cheers. People were having a collective cinematic experience, which was kind of exhilarating to be a part of and to feel the abandon that you could shout and yell and, and holler with glee at events going on on the screen collectively in a movie theater was a really cathartic release, and I think we needed it. You know, uh, I saw this film on the day of the school shooting in Texas, which is just a, what can you say? I mean, it, it, it just causes you to question where American society and culture is, what our belief systems are, what are the things we hold valuable. It, it's a horrible and just frequently 
all too frequent occurrence in our society. And when you have an experience like that, an escape uh, allowing you just some moments, time out of mind, I think is uh, all the more valuable. So that, that was in the air too, I could feel. I think people needed this type of a release. I think people needed this type of uh, experience in a movie theater after COVID, even though we're still dealing with it and people are still paying a heavy price in places. But the experience of watching this film was uh, unparalleled. You know, it's uh, there. There are movie. There are movies I remember seeing in the theater because the experience of seeing them is so overwhelming. And Blade Runner twenty forty nine is is one of them. Dune is one of them. This film I put up there with that level of engaged experience. It's something I'm going to remember forever. That's how good it was. Now, as a film, I think it's incredibly well done. I think the commitment to quality top to bottom in terms of casting, paying attention to the story. It has such a great balance of humor, action, emotion, callback, fan service, all of these things really diligently done, but not just in a way that's like ticking the box. You know, when they do fan service stuff, it's always in the context of a story which is really well told. And while the mission that they're on can feel a bit MacGuffin-ish, you know, we've got to do this impossible thing and fly these jets in impossible places. And, you know, there are two miracles required to escape and get away alive. All that kind of stuff is compelling. But, you know, you're really there to watch Tom Cruise and Iceman uh, and have those moments like buzzing the tower, uh, have those moments where you are connected to something that occurred 30 years ago. And as I was watching Tom Cruise on screen, who of course looks incredible and amazing for however old he is, he's gotta be in his mid fifties at least, you know, it's it, movie stars are so few and far between right now. It's hard to think of another movie star that's of the global caliber of Tom Cruise. I'm not sure there is one right now. Uh, they're not growing these guys on trees. And I don't know that anyone else will will come along to achieve that type of commitment to being a movie star because Tom has put the work in over his career. Uh, he's been in movies since he was a teenager, 15, 16 years old in his first roles. So we've grown up with him. We've watched him navigate his life the way we've navigated our lives. And there's a part of movie stars and actors that we whose lives we follow that uh, it's not that we know them, but we do have a collective shared experience of their experience and what we what we do know of their, of their their lives and their work. When you're watching Top Gun and you're seeing Tom Cruise up on the screen, you're not just watching an actor in a movie. You're, you're watching Tom Cruise from Top Gun be in Top Gun Maverick 30 years later. And that's part of the experience of it, which is such an interesting thing to think about as part of entertainment. Uh, because it's different than other types of acting performances and roles where maybe you don't know the actor so well or it's someone who's kind of new. For example, there's there's a, a handful of actors in this who I've never seen before. The actor who plays Bob, the bespectacled kind of nerdy uh, number two on one of the planes. Uh, Cruz's kind of right-hand man uh, who is this brilliant, hilarious kind of heavy set guy with with glasses and a mustache who's always kind of exasperated but has Maverick's back in his various antics and moments where he goes off the reservation. Um, 
these these roles are so well cast, but we don't know these actors, so you're really able to just enjoy them as actors on screen. So I, I think they did a great job putting this script together. Uh, and it feels like the attention to detail and the fact that we're not gonna do this unless we can really do something that is setting a new standard for aerial flight photography, uh, setting a new standard for the Top Gun thing having a reason to exist. They're not just doing it to do it. And at the screening I saw, and maybe at the, at the, in the eventual ones that you're seeing, Tom is, comes on screen and does a little introductory uh, bit about the film where he talks about that. And he talks about like, you know, we were only gonna do this if we could do this to the nth degree. And he hopes that you enjoy it. The film is really well cast. They're really good actors up and down. Ed Harris, John Hamm, uh, Miles Teller, on and on. I thought real actors were doing these performances, which helps. There's eye candy, but it's not just for the sake of eye candy. Uh, Jennifer Connelly is really good as the Tom Cruise love interest. And I said to my wife, I was so glad they cast kind of an age appropriate actor opposite Tom. You know, they didn't go for like some 24 year old or 25 year old love interest. Uh, Jennifer Connelly feels like she's lived and she too has been around since she was a teenager and has survived and thrived apparently. And so she feels on screen with Tom Cruise like that's something that plausibly could happen. And it's not just, you know, Hollywood casting another beautiful young actor against an older male actor, uh, even though, of course, she is beautiful. And I don't know how old Jennifer Connelly is, but she's probably in her 50s, I'm going to assume. And that's kind of refreshing to see age-appropriate couples on screen as opposed to old leading man and young female co-star. So they didn't do that. I thought John Hamm turned in a great performance as uh, kind of the bad guy in a way. And one of the things I really liked about the film was I thought both the Maverick character and the John Hamm character you know, these are people who have heft and weight in Hollywood and could could demand or ask for things to be done exactly the way they want and probably get their way. Certainly Tom Cruise. I mean, it's his movie. It's his production. He's in control. The Tom Cruise character, the Maverick character, is allowed to be the butt of just the right amount of jokes that humanizes him. He's fallible. There are misunderstandings. He fails at things. And I thought it was kind of impressive that Tom Cruise allowed that to happen. The Maverick character is not this one-dimensional, infallible ice warrior. Uh, he's human and he's confronting his humanity. He's confronting maybe the end of his career. And they do that really, really well. And John Hamm you know, has not what I'm gonna say is a thankless role because it's a necessary role, but he's the military hard ass who doesn't wanna have anything to do with Maverick and is saddled with him. And he tries to alter the training regimen halfway through and all this kind of stuff. But John Hamm too, you know, commits to that and sees that through and manages to make that really believable and grounded and, and real in a way because of the quality of his acting. And Ed Harris, uh, you know, of course he's great. So I really thought they they did a good job kind of balancing the nuance of all these characters uh, in sync with each other. And when I say I laughed, I cried. I mean, it's funny. There are really funny jokes. There are really funny bits. The humor is perfectly laid out with the action. 
And the action we'll speak about in a moment. That's unparalleled. So I really thought the casting was done well. I thought the story was good. It gave us everything that we want right from the beginning. It's a roller coaster ride. Now, the other bit of casting I want to talk about is Val Kilmer. I, I think that is the most emotionally resonant moment for audience goers. And I think uh, maybe you're going to have had this experience in the theater too. You know, I certainly felt that, that there are two kind of emotional peaks of the film. One was both the the face-to-face uh, -face meeting of Iceman and Maverick after all these years, where Iceman can't speak and he's typing his dial he's typing his dialogue to Maverick uh, until at the end he does speak. And I've read that they actually digitally created this voice for Val Kilmer. That if you if I if you didn't know that you probably wouldn't have been able to tell that. Um, I'm not sure what degree of vocal control Val Kilmer has after his cancer bout, but. I heard that they sort of digitally created or altered this whispery, papery voice that he uses, which, which comes to great effect. And when Iceman passes away, they similarly uh, really allow that moment to be resonant. And there's also a nice turn from uh, an actor named Jean Louisa Kelly, who plays uh, Iceman's wife. And she was really good. Uh, apparently she was in Uncle Buck all these years ago. Uh, and again, another age appropriate actor used to uh, really proper and emotive effect. I thought she did a great job. Uh, when the Iceman passes away, it's, it's one of the emotional kind of uh, points of the film that really reaches out and grabs you. And the other, of course, emotional moment is the, uh, the coming together of uh, of the Miles 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 Teller Bradley Bradshaw character and Pete Maverick, the backstory of you know Maverick after losing Goose, uh, Goose's son grows up and decides to become a naval aviator, and Tom Cruise and, and you know Pete Maverick in his position at the time pulls the kid's papers, which costs him four years in his flying career because of course he doesn't want this kid to to die. He doesn't want his mother to lose the son just like she lost the husband. Although Meg Ryan is not in this film, which I kind of missed. They throw in a little line about her passing away. I want to read a little bit about why some of the people I would have expected to see weren't in this, like Tom Skerritt, Meg Ryan, and all that kind of thing. But but the way they come together at the end of the film is really well handled and is another big emotional moment that'll have you having tears in your eyes. Miles Teller does a great job in this film. Uh, I think he really, really pulled off uh, a tricky and interesting role. And, and I thought he and Tom Cruise were great together, just like Tom and Jennifer Connelly were great. Tom and Val Kilmer were great. Tom and John Hamm were great. But Tom Cruise is a good, great actor. You know, Tom Cruise in scenes with John Hamm or in scenes with Val Kilmer, he's, and what, what, how do I say this? The, the balance of power in those scenes does not lie with Maverick. So if he has a scene with John Hamm, John Hamm is in control. He is the admiral. He's the authority. Maverick is not a wise ass who mouths off to authority. He's sly. He gets his point across, but he always does so within the realistic confines of a military code. But I think I'm impressed by Tom the actor because he allows that balance to be very apparent on screen. And again, you're talking about an extremely 
powerful presence in a movie star like Tom Cruise, just by putting him in a scene with another actor, however good, there's almost an imbalance of power on screen just to begin with, just with what we, just what the actor contains, let alone what we know of the actor. So we're bringing that to bear, but the actor also just, he's a movie star for a reason. He has that presence. And I thought it was really impressive how the director of this film uh, and and Tom Cruise and these, and well, it's really the director and it's Tom because it's it's you know it's it's Tom calibrating his performance or the director working with Tom to calibrate Tom's performance to be pitched just the right way so that when you watch these scenes, you feel the weight of what these authority figures want from Maverick and you feel Maverick uh, being subservient to that a bit, even as he, of course, saves the day and gets his own way. So that to me is a cut above in films like this, action adventure films. You know, I thought that was really, really well done. The action, the flying sequences, the bar is forever risen. Uh, it is the greatest aerial photography I've ever seen in a film. I don't, I can't imagine this is going to be surpassed unless they do uh, additional Top Gun films using the Miles Teller cast and uh, even Maverick for that matter could still be around to do a sequel to this if they decide to do it. But I read in American Cinematographer Magazine a bit about how they filmed these scenes. It's a, a lot of amazing technical detail, which I'm not gonna go into here, but I did geek out on all that stuff. Suffice it to say, there is a uh, there are two uh, two jets which were outfitted with, I believe, six cameras internally and two cameras externally. That's capturing all of the inside the cockpit action and some of the outside the cockpit action. And then there's also like a father and son uh, Hollywood jet photography team who capture the medium or wide shots of the jets in the air doing the flying that they're doing. And you have a long roster of stunt pilots uh, and naval aviators who are uh, performing stunts. Okay, so talking a little bit about the flying, this is a big thing. You know, we know that Tom Cruise does a lot of his own stunts. We know that he is a licensed pilot. He flies prop aircraft. He flies helicopters. He landed a helicopter on an aircraft carrier for the premiere of the film. Uh, he did not actually pilot the F-18 Hornet that he's seen flying in the film. I believe they had special jets rigged where actual Navy aviators were at the con the real controls and the way that the cockpit is designed allows it to appear that Cruz is solo piloting and that the other actors are solo piloting. But they did go through all of the training that the F-18 pilots have to go through. And many of them did actually obtain their pilot's licenses. And Tom is seen flying a propeller aircraft that is his own when he takes Jennifer Connelly on a flight in a P-51 red tail, which is a, a period silver plane that he flies. Uh, he is flying that, uh, but he is not allowed to fly the jets because I guess they cost 70 or $80 million each. And the Navy, although completely involved in the production of this is not really gonna allow actors to take that risk. But having said that, I don't think you can tell. I think that the, uh, the jets are being flown at supersonic speeds 
you can tell that on the phys the uh, the physicality of the actor's skin and faces, what's happening as these planes are thrust through really extreme acrobatic maneuvering. Uh, that's all real. That all is real flying. There's no CGI involved in that flying sequence that you're looking at. So from that standpoint, from a technical standpoint, it's an amazing world of how they did this. I'm really looking forward to watching some of the eventual uh, featurettes and making of stuff about how they pulled this off technically because it must have been an incredibly involved production between the U.S. Navy and Hollywood and the production of the film and all this safety that must have, have occurred. So they put something on screen you're never going to have seen before. And, I, and that's why I do think it's really worth trying to see it in an RPX type theater where you can have this full experience of just being immersed in the film. Now, another thing I wanted to mention was in a way, it's it could be a little morbid to say this, but we've all known and followed Val Kilmer's travails over the recent years with his throat cancer and, and uh, his physicality and his um, his ability to speak becoming challenged, uh, his documentary, which you may have seen, which traces his life and his career. You know, he's in this final moment, it feels like. And while he certainly looks physically capable enough, uh, the ability to speak is something that's uh, going to be interesting to follow. And the Iceman character dying in this film can feel a bit like we had a moment for our appreciation for the actor Val Kilmer in real time while he's still alive. So that can feel a little morbid. Uh, and I know it is just a character, but it does feel like we're kind of taking this moment to say, wow, we love this guy. We love this actor. We love these movies and he can't really do it anymore. So let's have a fitting send off to a beloved actor. Uh, although also the ability to use this technology to create this voice for him creates a really interesting possibility going forward that he, he might actually be able to to perform in a film and have dialogue that maybe in real life he can't. And I think that's such a fascinating use of something like, you know, de-aging techniques for De Niro and the Irishman and things like that, which just kind of don't quite fool the eye and feel a little uncanny valley. But I think the audio that they were able to accomplish and the voice that they apparently created for him really makes it possible for him to be in a, in a film, to carry a film, if he can do it physically. So there is an interesting kind of thing with Val's character and I think Again, revisiting beloved characters 30 years later is always going to be a part of why we're watching and enjoying these films. Okay, so it's it's now a couple of weeks since I saw Top Gun in the theaters. And as I mentioned, I saved this episode for this week when most of you, I think, who are interested in the movie will have seen it. Subsequent to that, I wanted to touch a little bit on some of the reaction to the film and also a bit of a wormhole that I went down into the technical filming of the flying sequences, which upon a, a deeper investigation are even more impressive than I originally thought. I've been listening a lot to uh, some podcasts featuring retired US Navy aviators and fighter, fighter pilots. And presuming that you don't spend some portion of your time listening to retired naval aviators discuss the specific technicalities of filming aerial combat sequences in Top Gun Maverick, I thought I would share a little of what I've learned because I think it heightens the appreciation for what was accomplished and the barrier that was set, the bar that was set rather by Tom Cruise uh, for the sequences to be filmed. 
So Kevin LaRosa is a second generation Hollywood stunt pilot and aviation sequences cinematographer who was the key individual for filming all of these sequences in the movie. And I've listened to him on a couple of podcasts talk about how they did what they did, obviously in great cooperation with the U.S. Navy, who also had cooperated with the first film. And the difference between the two films in terms of the flying sequences is that none of the flying sequences that feature actors that are in the first Top Gun were filmed with the planes actually flying in the air. Those were all filmed in a hangar in Burbank, I believe, with the cast member sitting in a fuselage that was mounted on a gimbal and could be manipulated to look against a plate, which was uh, an aerial shot behind the plane as if it was flying and was filmed accordingly. Tom Cruise told Kevin LaRosa and the entire assembled production team of Top Gun Maverick at the starting of filming that the goal was going to be absolute perfection in the aviation sequences. And they were going to to do something that had never been done before, which was to capture these jets in the air with the actors in them so that all the flying that you see in the film was actually performed. Now, of course, as I said before, it's not performed by the actors themselves. Their jets are modified so that they can appear to be in the cockpit driver's position, but maybe the jet is being operated from behind or rather they're in a behind position, it's being operated from the forward position. I'm not quite sure how the technicalities of it work, but essentially what's happening is the cast members trained to be able to go up and be in the jets, performing at extremely high speeds, performing these maneuvers uh, for the close-up shots that were required of them in the cockpits. And then stunt pilots are performing the other maneuvers where you're not seeing a pilot's face in the cockpit as they're flying it. But all that stuff actually was flown. And the technology that he used to capture these images at, uh, I think his camera plane had a max speed of 350 knots. And so uh, the jets obviously move much faster than that. So they had to devise plenty of ways to capture that essence of speed and motion that will just you know, rock your world and has really transformed the way uh, aviation sequences are going to be filmed in films going forward. Now, the, the reality is that this type of stuff is less is going to appeal to maybe I think I heard uh, one of the fighter pilot podcast guys talk about that the audience for naval aviators watching Top Gun is probably less than 1% of the audience of people that will go to see the film. But for those guys to be impressed is quite something because these guys are going to watch this movie and not only compare it to what their real life experiences are, and they all have a very fundamental awareness that as Tony Scott told the original naval coordinators on the original Top Gun in 86, it's not an effing documentary, it's an effing movie. So while they're aware of that, they're also looking to see if the flight scenes are realistic. And as they said on uh, the panel put together by a podcast called the Fighter Pilot Podcast, each one of those guys said, everything I saw on the screen, I've done in a plane. And that's a huge accomplishment for the film, because again, although that percentage of the audience is maybe 1% or less, it, it, it cumulatively creates a credibility that the film has, and it underscores the authenticity of what you're seeing. And it's part of why those sequences are so exhilarating to experience live in a theater. So on the Fighter Pilot podcast, Kevin LaRosa talked a lot about how so much attention was paid to flight sequences so that 
most audience members, 99% of the audience is just entertained. And I think if, you know, we've talked about things like this on the podcast before, whether it's a movie like seven, where David Fincher is paying so much attention to the minutia of the filmmaking. And as, as an average viewer, you're probably not going to be aware of what's going on with all the layered attention to detail, the cinematography and the sound design. But as a viewer experiencing it in a theater or at home, it's part of why you have the experience you have. It's part of why the movie is good or great. And the same thing is true in these flying sequences for Top Gun Maverick. You or I, you or I may not be sophisticated enough a viewer to understand uh, how they were able to capture what they were able to capture. But when they are have the the cooperation of the of the navy and they have the time and they have the technology to film these high performance planes performing highly in real world situations and capture that with you know incredible cutting edge cinematography uh that cuts together in a way that provides this exhilarating experience for the viewer and most people are just munching their popcorn and their twizzlers and are not really stopping to think about how they did it but my point is, is that if you spend a little time thinking about or learning about how they did it, which I have done since seeing the movie, man, it, it, it makes it all the more impressive. And I can't wait to see the film a second time to really just focus and zero in on some of the stuff that I learned on a couple of those podcasts. So again, incredible accomplishment, nothing like it has ever been put on the screen before. And it's absolutely imperative if you haven't seen the film to go see it in the biggest theater, you can see it with the widest screen and the best possible audio. And you will just experience something that I don't think you've ever experienced in a movie theater before. Lieutenant Mitchell, Top Gun rules of engagement exist for your safety and for that of your team. They are not flexible, nor am I. Either obey them or you are history. Is that clear? Yes, sir. So in the end, uh, I think we can celebrate the fact that a quality movie at this epic scale was made for our enjoyment. I think we can all enjoy going to see a film like this and be reminded that we do have some movie stars left of a caliber and a magnitude of Tom Cruise. And that we should be grateful for that. And we should support those films and support the creation of quality mass entertainment of this sort. Because if you're a fan of the Marvel films or not, this type of film needs to exist, in my humble opinion, in order to balance out the equation of large-scale filmed entertainment being something that is connected to what we remember of going to really big movies and ex experiencing them together in a movie theater. I had a great experience in the movie theater seeing Top Gun Maverick. I hope you did too. And I hope that you join us again and listen to the next episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thanks for tuning in.